When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Bizarre Conspiracies. My name is Eric Bettino, and with me today is... Conrad Toll. Have I got a special story for you all. Conrad, I know you're going to like this. It falls into the typical category of topics that uh, we like to talk about usually anyway. <laughs> Cults? Cults, um, mysticism, black magic, sorcery, cannibalism even. All of that wonderful stuff. Today, I'm going to be talking about a book that I read called Darkness Over Tibet, and the author is Theodore Ilion. It's speculated, but we do know that he resided in Austria for the longest time. He did have uh, some German roots, and he wrote a lot of occult books before and after World War II. And this is going to be important, especially the uh, the before World War II, because he wrote this book that directly inspired Hitler to look into some more of the occult uh, mystical items that are out there in the world. Now, this is a apparently a true account, true events that happened to him. He traveled to Tibet to look for the mystical city of Shambhala, now, I think you know a little bit about Shambhala, Conrad, at least of its existence. But if you don't know, Shambhala is this mystical city that these Tibetan monks believe in. Not anybody can enter. You have to be invited into it. And this is what he searched out to look for. And, and it's kind of like a magical island where if you're not invited, you'll never be able to find it kind of a thing, right? Exactly. But it's no island. He claims it's actually deep underground in the desert. So maybe not so mystical place after all. Okay. Any, anyways. But if it's in Tibet, mm-hmm. the only desert nearby, I think, is if you go north into China, they're out of the mountains, you'll find a desert. Mm. Obviously, if you head south, you'll hit the jungle of India. So that's not where he's going. So <laughs> I guess well, I'm getting kind of an idea of where he's going. Yeah, the exact coordinates he did not say in his book. He did not reveal it. All he said was it was deep underground in the desert was this secret lost city. It's not a long book. There's only five chapters, but I'm going to focus on chapter four. This is the part where he actually finds the city, infiltrates it, sort of, and things are just so weird there. Okay, so he meets a man called Narbu, who he describes as being incredibly smart, enthusiastic, and nice, and welcomed him to the desert's underground metropolis. 
He finally arrives in the city, which appeared deserted and devoid of people after a two-day journey. Now, looking around, he noticed many crystal structures that resemble buildings. But still, no individuals around. He continued to go about and start to investigate this enormous city. And after a few hours, someone eventually approached him with a voice that could only be described as robotic and eyes that were somewhat dejected. They acted obedient, and weirdly, their eyes resembled those of the dead. At the beginning, very weird. Every aspect of the city struck him as being incredibly orderly, functional, well-organized. The brilliance of the city's design was evident in every detail. Then, he notices children carrying large packages, parcels, while wearing cloth clothing. Now, he notices everyone's clothing because it's quite different and, and you'll see why. A little girl dropped a, a package while she passed him, and this is what he said. I stopped to help her to pick it up. Our eyes met. I had never seen such a child with eyes with no life in them. No joy, no enthusiasm, only the devoid expression of a mechanical working intelligence. That's how he hmm. uh, says it in his book. Could it also maybe been the deficiency of vitamin D? Because <laughs> they don't have some. They actually do. A mechanical acting elder who was wearing a chupa approached him at a precise moment and said, My lord, our guest Leo Muchu will meet you at the entrance of the palace. Now, a chupa, he describes it as kind of a commoner clothing, like a, mm -hmm. like a robe. Every single person was wearing the exact same robe, and if you were, let's say, like one of the uh, poorest civilians on the city, you were wearing the exact same clothing as everybody else. The higher you get in society, the better type of clothes you wear, he noticed. Now, okay. he proceeded to the stairway that was pointed to him by the lifeless servant. He was greeted with a smile by a young woman who was finely attired in fine pure white silk. Welcome, she said in a very low voice. We knew that you were coming. You are the second white person who has visited the holy city, she said. And then she added in broken English, There have been several people here from India, but only one from the west. And then he asked her, Has he not returned? And she said, No. Unfortunately, he died and is buried here in the holy city. Mm. She takes him to the place where the deceased are buried. It's a large structure with a glass roof with water running through the glass roof. With several levels known as the Dead House. This building had, again, several levels, all of them with different purposes. Now, as they proceed past the temple door, it was composed entirely of gold. Now, she informs him that entry is only permitted for Holy Brotherhood members, and she is unable to let him in. Special permission from him, the Prince of Light, is necessary for visitors, but he's not currently in the city. Okay, so now his close friend... It wasn't the sure. Prince of Light who gave him permission to enter the city? Or no, so you don't need... He clarifies this later, but I'll go ahead and say it now. You don't need permission from the Prince of Light to enter the city. You just need to be invited into the city by a member of the city. Oh. And that was his friend, Narbu, invited him into the city. Now, Narbu returned to the Holy City after spending some time... There, he was taken to his room. 
This time, his eyes were beginning to change and take on a glass-like appearance. Narboos? Narboos, yeah. And okay. he wasn't comfortable with it. He felt uncomfortable after realizing that people change once they come into the Holy City. Because beforehand, he met Narbu outside of the Holy City, and Narbu was normal. He had emotion to his face and, and expression in his voice and all of that. But as soon as he entered the city, he acted robotic like all the other members of the city. Now, the Prince of Light, the ruler of the Holy City, was anticipated to return the next day, and Narbu informed him that it was likely that he would be given the opportunity to meet with him. That night, he went to bed before the villagers, and he just had the worst dream he ever had. Before I say the dream, I should note... The villagers of the Holy City do not wake up before noon. They wake up at noon, they have breakfast, <laughs> and then they have dinner like around 10 p.m. or something. And then they go to sleep around 2, 3 in the morning. Interesting. It's, it's very weird. Theodore, he is going to sleep at his usual time, so like 8, 9 o'clock at night. He's not keeping the hours of the Holy City. And I should also note now because I don't think I mentioned it in my notes, that upon given a guest room, no visitor is allowed to eat in such room or wash his own clothes or bed linens. It's just a rule. Okay, so he has to eat all of his meals down in some sort of a There's a dining area. hall. Yeah, okay. there's a dining hall where everyone has to eat. And then other people come and clean his room for him, I guess. Yes. Okay. So the dream, a dazzling angel with a lion and a human face descended from the skies and swung his sword at the attacking demons in his dream as they attempted to sever his heart. Now he noticed that the angel's sword was very bright, like blindingly bright, almost as if it was made from the sun. Hmm. He immediately woke up and discovered that he had a high fever and was dangerously close to dying. Now, when he woke up, he went for a walk, <laughs> and uh, he stripped all his clothes off. He got, he got naked, took a sun bath. He just feels completely different. Like, when he went out for this walk, he claimed that he felt completely recovered. Now, when he walked back into the city, he found out that the Prince of Light had arrived early. Sometime that night, actually. And when it was time for breakfast at midday, he saw Narbu there with the most excitement he had ever seen anyone there in the Holy City have. He came with great news. He said that he was granted the audience with the Prince of Light. And for 30 minutes, no less. Now, no one has ever had more than seven minutes with the Prince of Light. So this was a big deal. Mm -hmm. The events going in the Holy City turned out to be really fascinating to him. For example, he learned that sexual activity could only be employed for reproduction, even if it's between married individuals. Mm -hmm. Unused sexual energy has to be transformed into a higher force in order to forward the Brotherhood's goals. Even the member's sexual energy was claimed to belong to the prince, rather to them. Okay, so this is beginning to explain the lifelessness of the <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Individuals. 
it must be employed to produce spiritual energy to fill the, the initiate's spiritual reservoir, or to bear offspring to be raised in his spirit, the prince's spirit. Regarding anything having to do with sex, the holy city seems to have an anthill mindset. So, anthill, it means there's the queen ant, and it produces all the young, pretty much. Right, right. And the queen, in this case, would be the prince. Okay. So, he goes back to his room in the late afternoon. He made an effort to think clearly, but the more he spent time in the holy city, the harder it seemed to be shielded from one's subconscious influences. In other words, the longer he stayed in the holy city, the harder it was for him to think and have his own thoughts. Because he... I forgot to mention this in the notes. Every meal he ate in the dining hall with the other members, he said it was some sort of meat he couldn't identify. It was weird to him. He was a meat eater, but he couldn't identify it. He said it tasted good, well-seasoned, but it was just something off about it. And later at night, it, it wouldn't sit right with him. Now, he ate his meals silently, grinned at Narbu, and then he went back to his room. After every meal, the ability to think clearly decreased. So later that night, after going to bed, he woke up at 3 in the morning and walked to the nearest village to buy his own food. In the village, he had purchased enough food to last him for at least four days. Strangely, this self-made meal did not seem to interfere with his ability to think. It started coming back to him. When the opportunity arose to meet the Prince of Light, it was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon that day. He arrived 10 minutes before 3 and was greeted by 7 servants in all, who guided him down and down this lengthy hall until he was finally standing in front of the Golden Door. Standing in front of the golden door, he was sprayed down uh, with this, uh, kind of like this golden air spray. I, I, he doesn't know how to describe it. Another servant came up to him and lavishly doused him in this golden perfume fragrance. He, he didn't understand it, but it was the custom. Before entering the palace, inter sanctum, he had not participated being subject to such stench. However... He thought it was possible that the prince made this wise general rule for his own advantage in the event that someone with real Tibetan views on hygiene and cleanliness were to be welcomed as a guest by a member of the Holy Brotherhood. So this is why he just went along with it. So he enters the temple. And this enormous chamber was approximately like 30 to 40 yards. A liquid Burning with a smokeless flame was delivered through pipes into hundreds of torches that were inserted to golden sockets in the wall around the pillars to provide light. The masters of ceremony likely experienced the biggest shocks of their lives that very time because he absolutely refused to wear any form of ceremonial robe. And he said, if your master is great, as you affirm, then he must know whether or not I'm worthy or not. I don't want to wear any special dress to improve my appearance when wearing this before him. So he continues to defy them and refusing to put on any robes, but is eventually permitted entry to view the Prince of Light. 
When he comes in, he got up, greeted him roughly halfway, and extended his left hand to him with great politeness. He smiled and stated in perfect English, the left one is closer to the heart. But Narbu later revealed to him that the Prince of Light is fluent in six languages. In Tibet, English, French, Chinese, Hindu, and Sanskrit. Now, he began to speak to Theodore, the prince did. You are a man of great capacity, and you will have to fulfill a great mission in this incarnation. The next few days will be of vital importance to you. The experience of the whole series of lives will be crowded for you into the space of a few hours. You are called upon to take perhaps the greatest decision you have ever been called upon to make, not only in this life, but also in hundreds of previous existence. No one can force your hands. You yourself must decide in perfect freedom. Now, he says this, his voice was refined, strong, and beautiful, but had a slightly metallic sound. He had a very deep voice, too. He was very tall and had long white beard. He looked like a mixture of maybe Jewish with Tibetan in him. He had a certain aristocratic look to him. Anyways, he continues to say, If man throws his soul away, he cannot make amends for it. He cannot take it back afterwards. There are mistakes which are fatal for all eternity. You could become all-powerful. And then Theodore asked, But at what price? And the prince replied, You must discover that for yourself. Now, after 30 minutes, he thanked the prince for his time. He stood up and walked out. The prince did not say exactly what the choice was going to be. No, he was pretty vague about everything. But yeah, after this, he went back to his room, refused to join them for supper again. Instead, he prepared his own meal using the groceries he had purchased recently. He went to see his friend Narbu and expressed his desire to partake in a service. Because meeting the Prince of Light was just kind of a formal introduction to each other. It, there was no service about it. So he wanted to witness one of these services. The temple center was occupied by a kind of altar, a never extinguishing flame, I should say, and four long tables extended outward, forming a big cross. He noticed that there were Tibetan writings in Sanskrit uh, written all over the wall, the temple walls. He could read some of it, but not all of them. One of them, he saw, said, Give your soul to the master. He will show you the light. Another one read, Distrust your brain. Deep understanding is beyond intelligence. And one more that said, Blessed be you who suffer. Come to me and I will relieve you. Just strange and bizarre sayings. The bell rang to signal the start of the service. And then a very highly ordained initiate entered the temple from the northern wall into the center altar, wearing a pricey white silk robe. His assistants would frequently touch the ground with their heads just behind him. As he performed, and I quote, this is in the book, queer rituals and movements, there was bell tolls and frequent incense burning, and on one occasion, the priest circled the altar seven times while continuously swinging the incense burner. At the conclusion of the service, the priest blessed some tiny rice pills, and the Brotherhood members, 
one by one, walked up to the altar, and each took a blessed pill from the golden plate and swallowed it with great devotion before returning to their seats. Then, one by one, each member of the group poured a little vial of what appeared to be blood into hundreds of tiny vases. Now, Narbu later revealed that it was, in fact, blood, but he was not permitted to reveal to him the identity or type blood that it was. In any event, this closed the service. After that, he then went for a walk and headed a few miles outside of the city. And he noticed that a thunderstorm, which was a very strong in Tibet, was going to start soon. It was an extremely violent thunderstorm. By roughly five minutes, he was practically drenched after a series of quick successions of lightning strikes. And then the rain stopped. He stripped his clothes off once more, laying his clothes on the ground to dry. After about three hours, they were dry enough for him to start walking back to the city. Upon returning to the city, he visits the library where Narbu is already there and greets him, standing up. He started to listen to the sound of his own voice while speaking to Narbu. It was starting to sound metallic as well. He left Narbu, who was studying a manuscript written in Sanskrit and he went over to a mirror. When he saw himself, he stepped back. Never before had he seen in his own eyes the windows of his soul, looking so lifelessly. There was something strange about his features, too. There was something of a grin of a demon in them. He scans the room, and he notices his old photograph of the prince and other members around the prince. He fixed his gaze on it. They were stunning, yet depressing. There was no soul. Now, he yelled out in one terrible agony from every part of him as he sat down and covered his face with his hands. He instantly understood the nature of each of these soul survivors. Guess what this epiphany was? That the prince was draining their energy? Uh, more to it than that. He discovered... That they were fallen angels. Oh. They were angels who, in their desire to mirror God, had forfeited their souls. The Prince of Light was really the Prince of Darkness in disguise. Now at that very moment, the Prince entered the library through the door that had two servants standing near it. Everyone stood up, and the Prince approached him. Have you made a decision? Earlier that day, the Prince had asked him to join the Brotherhood become a member. He said, yes, I've made a decision out loud. Confounded sorcerer! <laughs> he kind of yelled out. Now you expose your true nature. Step aside in the name of the creator, as he yelled in a loud voice. He abruptly understood that learning the true nature of such thing resulted in death. Now, after the prince heard this, he sort of looked at him with more of like a, like an angry gaze at him. Oddly enough, though, the prince turned around and left the library. Hmm. He, upon exiting the library, he let out an order, one final order. To capture him, he must not leave the holy city. Now, he hurried to leave the city in a panic, fearing that someone would kill him. Yes, he was not permitted to leave the city, but he knew that he was going to be murdered. There's no way that they were just going to capture him and force him to stay there. No way. So, he ran as quickly as he could, shoving people out of the way. 
when he unintentionally entered the kitchen. What he saw inside horrified him, Conrad. The center of the kitchen was covered with human corpses. Small portions of flesh were being hacked off by lifeless robotic cooks. The portions of human flesh were passed on to boards and then meticulously sliced into small pieces using 10 to 15 large pans of silver suspended over open flames. Cooked. Yes. They were serving him and the rest of the group in the holy city breakfast and dinner made of human flesh. (laughs) This is why he could not stand or recognize the meat that he was eating. This is why he started making his own meals and they had some kind of higher priest there praying over the meat and he concluded this was also why he couldn't think clearly when he was eating it now he had only spent three days in the city of the initiates but he claimed that the experience had felt more like spanded decades and that was the end of the chapter. That's that's the end of my story. I'm going to leave you in suspense. Mm. Did he make it out? Did he not? Oh, clearly he made it out because he wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's the story. He went to Tibet to find Shambhala, the mystical city. He found a mystical city buried in the desert in Tibet. And what he found was dark yogis practicing black magic and partaking cannibalism. Hmm. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. So, it seems quite unearthly and definitely out of the ordinary. It reminds me a little bit of some of the crazy stuff that you will definitely see cult leaders babbling on and on about. So, I can't tell you exactly what he experienced. Uh, As far as I know, it doesn't sound like... It kind of sounds like a psychedelic experience, but... (laughs) It doesn't sound like he was using psychedelics, you know? Yeah, right. He wasn't. It sounds like a really bad psychedelic experience. (laughs) If you want to email me or Conrad about anything, if you have a topic you would like us to discuss, we'll look into it. If you want to email me or Conrad, you can do so at bizarreconspiracies at gmail.com. That's all one word, bizarreconspiracies at gmail.com. There will also be a link in the description down below. And I guess that will be it. Thank you for listening. And as always, we will catch you in the next episode.